Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that, or you're new to the program, in which case, hello, welcome. How are you? Happy you're here. It's a great day to be alive. It's a great day to be alive. It's a great day to not have a flu-like symptom or symptoms, runny nose, fever, itchy eyes. If you have that, please cough into your elbow and stay home from work for the next month. Please don't be bringing your stinky germs out into the world for the rest of us to catch coronavirus from. It just got personal for me yesterday. I don't know when the dime dropped for you, but I was at book club because I'm a player and my fellow book club mates were talking about the coronavirus. And one of them pointed out that people were hoarding toilet paper. Hmm. I don't know what's in your tater cellar where you're stockpiling goods for the potential dystopian apocalypse that uh, coronavirus might induce on our society. Maybe there's shotgun shells in there. Maybe there's cans of Denty Moore beef stew. Maybe you use that. Maybe you won't. What I know is that I will use toilet paper. I'm going to need some toilet paper over the next month, one way or the other. So I was like, maybe I'll pick up a few extra rolls. And I didn't want to go to the store and like pile one cart overflowing with stuff. I think what I do is I'm going to go to like three different stores and pretend like I'm just out running errands, right? Oh, look, I need to get some apples and some carrots and uh, 300 rolls of toilet paper. Also, I heard about people who were price gouging on Purell, and that's certainly not cool, but I have an idea. Let's make some homebrew Purell. Let's go back to basics and get some Vaseline and some bleach, stir it all up in a bucket like grandpa used to do and make that homebrew Purell. This is where my lawyer is going to insist that I have a disclaimer. I don't know if that's safe or not. It's You probably should assume that it's not safe. But anyway, craziness happening with the coronavirus. Hope everybody you know is safe. Take care of yourself. Use your head. Don't lose your head. That's the advice I'm going to give you right now. If this coronavirus proves anything, it's that the world is small and it's intimately connected in ways it never has been in the past. My guest today, Adam Minter, comes to us all the way from Malaysia, where he writes about the global trade in used goods. He is an expert in this field. He is the author of two books, Junkyard Planet Travels in the Billion Dollar Trash Trade, and his newest book is called Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. I heard him being interviewed on NPR's Fresh Air, which is kind of like crazy money, but not as big. They're working on it, though. God bless them. Someday they'll turn into something big. Anyway, I heard him being interviewed by Terry Gross, of whom I am a huge devotee. Hi, Terry. And uh, anyway, I really wanted to talk to him because I'm fascinated with the way that each of our consumption patterns, habits, when aggregated, how they affect the world. And this has to do with money in the sense that the choices we make and what we buy with our money leads not only to our happiness or away from our happiness, but it has an impact on the world as a whole. And I really want to understand sort of the context of how I relate with money impacts the world at large. And so that's why I found Adam so interesting. So we cover all kinds of crazy stuff. We spend a lot of time talking about Goodwill Industries, you know, the Goodwill store where you take your stuff when you think you're done with it. Well, 
it's this incredibly complex operation and large operation that works in ways that may not be as intuitive uh, to you as you think they are. Did I just use the word intuitive? They work differently than you might think is what I'm trying to say. We also talk about generational differences and, and the things that our parents valued. A lot of those things are going right into the junk heap, folks, because younger families and younger individuals aren't looking for the same kind of stuff that their parents valued. That's fascinating. We talk about the storage industry. We pay billions and billions of dollars every year to store stuff that we're not even using. This seems to be a uniquely American, bizarre habit, but again, speaks to our consumption patterns. Let me tell you a little bit more about Adam. He is a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, where he writes about China, technology, and the environment. He's the author of those two books, Junkyard Planet and Secondhand, which I mentioned to you before, and which we'll talk about in this interview. He has covered the global recycling industry for almost two decades. Like He knows more about this than almost anybody. And in 2002, he began a series of groundbreaking investigative pieces on China's emerging recycling industries for scrap and Recycling International. You probably subscribe to both of them. Since then, he's been cited, quoted, and interviewed on recycling and waste by a range of international media, most recently the New York Times, Vice, NPR, The Huffington Post, and CBC. He regularly speaks to groups about the global waste and recycling trade, including colleges, universities, trade groups, and TEDx. And again, as this coronavirus thing is demonstrating to us, what happens here affects people in China and in Africa and other parts of the world and vice versa. And we spoke live via web conferencing one Monday night a couple of weeks ago when it was 8.30 p.m. here in Atlanta and it was 8.30 a.m., I believe it was 8.30, in Malaysia where he lives. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Adam Minter. Another example is expiration dates on products when there are no real expiration dates. And we see this uh, most notably with uh, child safety equipment like car seats. Um, Every parent knows that there are expiration dates on the bottom or back of a child safety seat. But what most parents don't know is that there's actually no public science that actually supports there being any reason to believe that car seats do expire any more than the seatbelts in your car expire. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the core world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Adam Minter, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you so much. Adam, before we jump into the book, the books actually, because I want to talk to you about both of them, how does one decide to make his journalistic beat that of trash recycling in the world of secondhand goods? It was almost genetically preordained. <laughs> I actually, I grew up in a family of uh, scrap dealers, junkyard owners uh, in Minneapolis, dating back to the early 20th century. And in fact, I had always assumed that I was going to go into the business, but uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is that I'm just not a great business person. I ended up not going into the business. The other big one was that the city of Minneapolis actually wanted the land our small family junk was built on. So in my early 20s, I started looking for alternatives and I'd always been good at writing, I thought at least. And so I transitioned into journalism and, and you know, they always say, write what you know. And so that's what I started doing. Uh, some of my earliest gigs were writing for a uh, scrap metal trade magazines. And I thought that was just going to be, uh, you know, a temporary thing. And eventually I transitioned into covering, I don't know, American politics or something. But but I continued writing about recycling and waste and, and reuse. Uh, up to the present day. 
So in this most recent book, Secondhand, you go deep. And when I say deep, I mean you go deep and wide into the journey of what happens with the goods that we are finished with. Let's start on the supply side and make it personal. So my mother-in-law, hello, Sue, how are you? Hope you're having a good day. My mother-in-law thinks I'm a jerk, well, for many reasons, but one specifically is the fact that I'm not enthusiastic about accepting the generous gift of her old China place settings. Among my generation, am I uniquely ungrateful? No, you are not uniquely ungrateful. Yes. In fact, you are you, you are uniquely brave for saying no. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. In the course of writing this book, I heard so many stories from people who say, "In our house, we have our wedding china, and in the basement, we have." mom and dad's wedding china, and their mom's and dad's wedding china. So you will have, you know, three or four sets of wedding china, you know, dating back 100 years in homes of middle-aged people across the United States. And obviously, none of that stuff is being used. I mean, 20 years ago, it really wasn't being used very much, maybe on Thanksgiving. And these days, it may not even get used on Thanksgiving. So no, um, you are not uh, unique in, in wanting to refuse that, but just you are unique and, and brave in saying, no, I, this has to stop somewhere. Brave or stupid or both. So or, or both. Besides China, <laughs> what other kind of stuff is not making the generational leap into the homes of people's children? It's amazing, uh, you know, these things that we sort of assumed would be passed on and aren't. Um, but I think the biggest category, and it's literally the biggest category, is furniture. This beautiful old oak furniture. Fact is, early 20-ish uh, kid coming out of college wanting to furnish her own apartment doesn't want that beautiful oak dining room set in her first apartment. She wants something from Ikea that she can bring into the apartment, you know, build it quickly. And when it's time to leave the apartment for the next apartment, you know, 18 months down the line, she can either leave it, trash it, you know, or maybe if it survives the move, take it with her. But that big oak dining room set isn't going to appeal to her for a couple of reasons. One, who wants to move that thing, you know, once, much less three, four, five times? You know, we know the data shows that younger folks these days are moving more than ever. And so a 400-pound dining room set just isn't very appealing. Um, two, fashions change. And the look of that heavy oak furniture just isn't appealing to people, younger people in particular anymore. They want a cleaner look. They want a more modern look. And in the way apartments are being built these days as well with the big glass, you know, you just don't have the layout for that. That kind of thing anymore. So, so that stuff is not being passed along and it's, it's going orphaned. Indeed, there's a whole industry popping up that deals with the removal slash disposal of what grandpa and grandma leave behind. Absolutely. Uh, the clean out industry. And it's, I mean, it's probably been around as long as people have had stuff, but it's really emerged in the last two decades in the United States and a few other developed countries, including Japan, which I wrote about in the book. What it does is it comes in and when mom and dad need to downsize, you know, to that senior living facility or, or even just a smaller home because they've had enough or they want to declutter or, you know, the sad occasion upon a passing, they are there to come in 
in and not just toss stuff out, but but help family members, maybe mom and dad decide what's worth keeping and what's not. And and the very best of them serve as kind of stuff counselors, you know, where they will actually talk you through that process and say, you know, do you really need, you know, that uh, wedding china that you've held on to for 45 years in your, your new apartment with, you know, seven fewer rooms? That may sound like a really simple thing to do, but it's a really emotionally sensitive time for a lot of people. And so the people who do this, they're not trained counselors, but as I sat with them and I, I went on lots and lots of these cleanouts, uh, they really are a bit like social workers and, and their ability to, to counsel people on the pain of letting go of the stuff they have. And counseling them on what is actually salvageable or monetizable, like, well, surely that big oak dining table, it was built to be durable. It was built to hand down, but not the case. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things was, and I quote a couple people about this in the book, is, you know, when you reach this point in a clean out where people don't want to let go of stuff or, or they're just, they're really resisting. I mean, one of tactic is probably not the right word, but one of the tactics that's used is, is to remind them that, you know, this thing that you love, you know, these piles of Tupperware, somebody else can use them or they can be recycled. And people sort of instinctively need to know that their stuff is going to be wanted by someone else. You know, that's not necessarily coming from an environmental ethic. I mean, it, it also comes, I think, from ego, not in a bad sense, but just in a very human sense that, you know, this needing to feel like as I downsize all this stuff I accumulated over my life, the way I lived my life, it wasn't useless. There's still use in it. And and so that's what the, the clean out counselors, the move managers, as they're sometimes called, are able to do is they're able to promise them, I can take the stuff to somebody else. The one thing you don't want to do in a clean out, unless you want to stay there for weeks on end, is tell somebody, oh, no, 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 no. This is, this is going into the fire pit, you know, or this is this is off to the the landfill. I mean, it doesn't. That's a good way to make sure that cleanout doesn't end quickly. So yeah. So I thought a useful way to construct this conversation would be to look at the terms reduce, reuse, and recycle. Can we start by sure. by, by defining what that means? Reduce, reuse, and recycle. So I've actually tried to figure out when that phrase was first used, and I haven't been able to, but we do know that the term recycle was first used in the 1920s by the oil and gas industry. And it was really just as a way of explaining how the petrochemicals go through a cracking facility, a, a refiner, and they just keep recycling, recirculating through. How that came to be applied to this idea of you know taking your stuff and having it, you know, say a piece of paper chopped up and, and put into a pulpy machine and, and made into new paper, I don't know. But the process of recycling, of taking old stuff and treating it as a commodity, you know, to be made into new stuff goes back centuries. I mean, you know, it's biblical, you know, uh, swords into plowshares. Paul Revere did it. You know, he famously would go around New England looking for bits and pieces of silver that he could make into his gorgeous tea sets. So recycling is nothing new, but it started accelerating in the early 19th century as economies industrialized and people had more and more waste and they also had more and more demand for raw materials. And so it grew into an industrial type of activity. And I always tell people, you can't have recycling without manufacturing because the stuff you recycle has to be made into something new. So it's basically, I think of recycling as a greener way of providing raw materials to the manufacturing industry. That's what recycling is. That's what it means to go and toss a can into the green bin or blue bin or whatever color bin it is you have in your 
kitchen. So that's recycling. Reuse is sort of higher level. It's just as it sounds like. I mean, if, if you have uh, an old pair of jeans and you don't want to wear them anymore, you can drop them off at a thrift store and that thrift store may put them on a rack and somebody will buy them and they'll keep reusing them. Or if they're in such beat up condition, it may be that somebody at the thrift store will say, mm, nobody's going to buy these as jeans. We're going to send them to be made into rags. And, and that's a big industry in its own right. And there are companies that will cut up textiles, apparel, bed sheets, towels into rags that are used to wipe down everything from hotel and restaurant countertops to oil and gas pipelines. So that's really what reuse is. And there's there's a million, million permutations of it. And then reduce is just that. It's the idea that instead of buying that new or reused thing, you'll just sort of forego consumption altogether and, and make do with what you have. If you were to rank these in terms of their environmental effectiveness, which one would be on top? Oh, well, no question. Reduce. I mean, if you're not using anything, you're not requiring, you know, companies to dig up raw materials or cut down trees for paper. So reduce without question, followed by reusing things, because anytime you're extending the length of an object, a product, you know, an appliance, a piece of paper, for that matter, that's that's less pressure, again, to use energy to create new products and uh, less demand for new raw materials for new products. And then the, the last is recycle. It's the least effective in terms of environmental impact. I mean, for sure, uh, when you're recycling something, say an aluminum can, uh, the energy that goes into making recycled aluminum is about 90% less than what goes into making virgin aluminum, but you're still using energy and nothing is recyclable forever. You know, we all know the famous logo, the three arrows circling around each other. That's not really how things work. You know, your average piece of paper or cardboard can be recycled, the fibers in it can be recycled maybe seven times, and then they're too small to be used for anything and they get, they get trashed. You know, um, anytime you recycle aluminum, you know, there's some aluminum lost in that process at the smelting facility. So, you know, recycling is great, but it's really at the bottom of the pyramid for a reason. It, it uses still a lot of energy and a lot of raw materials. So we talk about reduce and it's very effective, but maybe it's a little bit of a pipe dream. From 1967 to 2017, the amount we spent on stuff increased by 20 fold. How much of that is based on population growth? Are we as individuals actually reducing what we're buying? It's not based on population growth. Um, it's, it's mostly based on people having access to more money, more space, um, and more low-cost stuff. So certainly population plays a role in that, but the, the growth has is, is exceeded that of population. So it's an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of stuff that Americans are buying, and it's not at all surprising. I mean, you know, anybody over, I think, the age of 25 who spent time in the United States knows that the variety of things available to us and the ease of shopping has grown exponentially as well over the last, you know, 25, 30, 40, 50 years. And, you know, with the advent of e-commerce, it becomes easier uh, still. So, so it becomes very, very difficult for people, I think, to resist that. And it results in, you know, what I, I sort of look at almost as a crisis of stuff because most of the things that we're buying at this point really have no reuse or recycling value. You know, to the question of whether reduce is, is a realistic approach to, to dealing with this problem, well, 
you know, I, I'm not one to lecture anybody on, on buying stuff. I like to buy stuff too. You know, certainly I think all of us could probably uh, spend a little bit less time entertaining ourselves on Amazon, you know, on our phones and, and a little bit more time, perhaps spending time with family members and doing the things that, you know, that I think traditionally human beings did before we had access to all this stuff. But whether we can reduce or not, I mean, is I think really going to come down to some, some individual choices and experiences along the way. You cite a World Bank study that shows between now and 2050, humans are on track to generate waste at a rate double population growth. Can Marie Kondo or the millennials save us? Uh, Marie Kondo definitely is not out to save you. In fact, uh, sort of the refreshing thing about uh, Marie Kondo is that she's been quite upfront that she is not about saving you. Ultimately, her method of decluttering and cleaning up people's homes is really about individual gratification. Is if you know her system, the KonMari method, you go through your stuff, and if something sparks joy in you, you keep it. If it doesn't spark joy in you, you don't keep it. But of course, that whole philosophy works very well in a department store as well, or or going to a, you know a gadget store. I can go to a uh, an appliance store and, and see a refrigerator, and if it sparks joy, uh, by Marie Kondo's reckoning, I probably should buy it. <laughs> um, you know, and and to her credit, I guess you know she's been upfront about this that she's not out to say the world. And, and she even has her own product line now of organizing devices that you can go and on her website right now and buy, and they'll help you organize your home. So no, Marie Kondo is, is not going to uh, save us uh, from uh, too much stuff. And the second part of the question was... There's a lot of talk about millennials. Millennials aren't into stuff. Are they more environmentally conscious than uh, the you know, Gen X and the baby boomer generation? So it's really easy to, you know, to speak ill of the millennials and and I I don't want to be that person. And yet, um, let me say this, uh, you know, the millennials have spoken a very good game about sustainability, you know, and reduction of stuff and and being more experiential based. But as they get older, it turns out that they are buying cars and homes and stuff at pretty much the same rate as prior generations, at least in the United States. Now, it's not all bad news. I think, you know, one of the most exciting exciting sort of, uh, well, I mean, this is about as platitudinous as you can get, but one of the most exciting uh, inventions in, in recent decades has been the smartphone, not because of the communication, but because of its ability to reduce the amount of stuff we own. There's a phenomenon out there that um, some folks call dematerialization, and it's simply the idea that the phone is replacing so many other things that one used to buy, everything from the hi-fi to the television to the compass, you know, those of us who would buy compasses for, for going out hiking, you know, it's, I I don't have a sextant anymore. Right. There you go. You know, so it's, but it's, it's really cool. And, and I, you know, I had this moment, uh, I was at an electronics recycling warehouse a few years ago and I stood in the receiving area and it was filled, filled with stuff that people really don't buy anymore. I remember as a kid growing up and seeing stereo equipment at Best Buy, you know, receivers and tape decks and CD players. You're hard pressed to find that stuff at a department store anymore, but it was being received at this electronics recycling warehouse. And and it occurred to me then that, you know, 10 years from now, we're not going to see this stuff coming in. And data supports sort of what was an informal observation of the Consumer Electronics Association in the United States has actually tracked the amount of electronic waste being generated by Americans and it's dropping precipitously and it's dropping precipitously, you know, parallel to the rise of the smartphone and to some extent the rise of the flat panel television as well. 
In what ways do manufacturers and marketers trick us into being more wasteful than we might be otherwise? Well, there's a few ways they can do this. One is uh, to market the product as something sort of impregnable. And this is something we increasingly see in the small consumer electronics industry, and especially uh, with smartphones and laptops. And nobody does this better than Apple, uh, which... uh, famously sealed up its iPhones and and consistently likes to talk about them as sort of this impregnable uh, brick, beautiful object you shouldn't dare open. And if you are old enough to remember having, you know, a phone before the smartphones, uh, you remember taking it for granted that if you needed to switch out a battery, you could just flip open the back of that thing and take out the battery and put one back in, you know, and and it was great. And it's amazing to me, just uh, one perspective that that nobody has figured out how to actually uh, uh, make switchable batteries in in iPhones yet. But Apple has no incentive to do that because what they have essentially done by sealing it up and sealing up the battery is made the effective lifespan of that phone the lifespan of the battery. And we know that's the case because a few years ago when they were embarrassed uh, by having it revealed that they were actually slowing down phones as the the batteries aged, they actually uh, set up a low-cost battery replacement program. And at the same time, they did that, they announced um, via Tim Cook that they expected that this would hurt their earnings because people weren't going to replace their phones as often. They were going to replace the battery. So it's it's a classic example of, you know, bas- basically clever design and a certain amount of marketing uh, effectively shortening the lifespan of an object uh, that will get people uh, to, um, to purchase a new one. The other way uh, that companies do this, and there's lots of ways of doing this, right. is the annual, the annual model. Nobody does this better than the automobile industry. They've been doing it, you know, I believe uh, since the 40s or or no, before World War II, um, General Motors pioneered it where, you know, we have a new model this year and there's a little tweak or something, but it leaves the people who have last year's model feeling a little left out, even though that last year's model uh, runs just as good as this year's model. Another example is expiration dates on products when there are no real expiration dates. And we see this uh, most notably with uh, child safety equipment like car seats. Um, every parent knows that there are expiration dates on the bottom or back of, of a child safety seat. But what most parents don't know is that there's actually no public science that actually supports there being any reason to believe that car seats do expire any more than the seatbelts in your car expire. So these are just some of the ways uh, that these that companies do this. Yeah, that struck me when I, I'd never given any thought to child safety seats until I became a parent myself. And when I found that out, I was like, that is, that's ridiculous. What is expired on this seat? Nothing. Right, right. And it's amazing. I mean, I I did not intend to go into this book looking into uh, child safety seats. It was really towards the end of the book um, where I started seeing Goodwill selling used child safety seats into Mexico. And I thought, well, that's not right because they expire, right? And they're taking advantage of folks in Mexico. And so I started looking around. I contacted U.S. regulators and asked, what are the rules and regulations on car seat expirations? And they said, there aren't any. You know, I started doing literature searches for peer-reviewed studies on how car seats expire. There are none, you know, unless the manufacturers are hiding them. So I contacted 10 of the world's largest car seat manufacturers and asked them, you know, on what basis do you set these, you know, expiration dates? You know, do you have any studies? And eight of them didn't answer me. 
Uh, one uh, sent answers to questions I didn't ask. And one uh, simply said in regards to how do you evaluate these, these seats for expiration dates, they said they declined to answer. Um, which is mind blowing to me. But when you start going <laughs> deep into the regulations, the only things that really are regulated, I mean, there's a lot of regulations about car seats, but the materials, the stuff on materials is very interesting, particularly the seat belts. And the seat belts are made on car seats, child safety seats from the same stuff and are subjected to the same tests as the seat belts in your car. And yet we would never, you know, suggest that a car's safety equipment expires after a certain period of time. And yet we buy into this idea, um, partly because I believe there's scare marketing involved, that, you know, the uh, seatbelts on our child safety seats expire after five years or whatever it is. And they simply don't. Yeah. Certainly there's probably more, you know, spoiled Go-Gurts and soggy Cheerios in your baby seat than there are in your typical seatbelt. Definitely. But, I know mine. But, <laughs> mine uh, but that doesn't mean you can't be reused. You, you right. said goodwill and you can't talk about reuse in the United States anyway without talking about goodwill. How big is goodwill? Uh, goodwill. Well, goodwill is the largest player in the North American used goods business. And what that means is that of the revenues that are earned in secondhand goods, reused goods, about one third is earned at Goodwill. They deal in an extraordinary volume of stuff, probably about 3% of the stuff that's generated in the United States and you know brought in for, for disposal as reusables, it goes through goodwill. Now you may say, wait a second, 3% doesn't sound like very much. And that's true, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that tells you just how much Americans are throwing into landfills and incinerators. But in terms of just sheer pounds, hundreds of thousands of millions of tons, it's it's absolutely <laughs> huge. So if I drop my old stuff off at Goodwill, can my guilty conscience and I sleep soundly at night knowing that my things will find a home and an extended life? In general, the answer is yes. So Goodwill isn't just, you know, a dump site. They don't have any incentive to behave as one because just like you and me, uh, they have a garbage bill. You know, if, if somebody drops something off there and it can't be reused or resold, they are going to have to pay for uh, the dumpster in which it goes to be dumped off somewhere. And they don't want to do that because Goodwill ultimately has a mission. It's a charity. And the mission is to promote job adoption by people who are you know, who have a hard time finding work. So for example, in Arizona, where I spent a lot of time, they spend a lot of time and a lot of money uh, getting GEDs and job training for uh, kids who have been in the juvenile justice system. And so the more stuff they can sell and make money from, the more kids they can help get through that juvenile justice system, get a GED, get them their first jobs. It's really kind of God's work as far as I'm concerned. So uh, with that in mind, if you drop something off, they are immediately going to look at it as something that has value, if it does have value. And then they're going to ask themselves, how can we maximize that value? You know, the best value for them is if they can put it on the racks at their stores and it will sell off the racks and they make the money from it that way. And that then goes into to their, their programs, their mission. If something doesn't sell on the racks and only about one third of the stuff that goes on the racks at American thrift stores actually sells off the racks, um, they have a lot of other ways to sell it and to make some money from it. It may go to an outlet center 
where uh, stuff is sold by the pound. And those are really interesting places. And I, in the book, I actually uh, take you into one and show you how it works a little bit. And if it can't sell at the outlet center, it may be sold uh, to rag makers, which is a, a massive, massive industry where the uh, apparel at least is cut up, or it could be exported overseas. And there are very, very big markets overseas for secondhand apparel from North America in particular. So as much as they can, uh, Goodwill is going to try and wring every dollar out of that thing that you dropped off. So you can feel good, you know, that they're going to try and do what they can with it. If they can't do it, probably nobody else can. We talked about Grandma's China and their furniture. What are some other things that won't sell at Goodwill? Uh, well, there are things, first of all, that Goodwill doesn't want coming through the door, uh, things like mattresses, and they will take almost everything, but there are certain things they won't take. I mean, you know, the chemicals from your basement or your garage, they don't want your old used oil or anything like that, of course, <laughs> but, uh, you know, surprise, you surprise. paint uh, I can bring by, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, people try and bring it. I mean, I sat for hours at, you know, donation doors watching what people brought in and what they tried to bring in and, and chemicals were amongst the things. Certain types of furniture they're not interested in getting. You know, believe it or not, hide beds heavy sofas, hide beds are not welcome and they won't sell. And there's a couple of reasons. One, they're, they're extremely heavy. And two, they're very dangerous. Um, if you ever tried to move one, you know, that thing can sort of pop open and it can really cause an injury. So they don't want those things going through the door and people don't want to buy them either. Go figure. That's just not going to sell. You know, your really, really old vintage electronics at this point, you know, are probably, you know, they're, they're not collector's items yet and they're not usable yet. So, you know, old, uh, old electronics is just something that they, they generally, the really old stuff is something that they would prefer not to have and it ends up being a cost to them. One that sort of brought me endless delight as I wrote this book and it had never occurred to me, but the last thing any secondhand goods business wants right now is a piano. Nobody <laughs> wants pianos anymore. <laughs> no, really, it's true. They are they are a nightmare to get rid of and they're very heavy and they take up space. And the era when every home in America had a piano in the front parlor, I guess, I don't know how many of us have front parlors anymore either, uh, but but that's over. And so people don't need them as a, uh, as a symbol of middle-class uh, achievement anymore. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, that Goodwill will send a lot of its used clothing overseas. I've read about unintended consequences of global trade and used goods. Are we doing a favor to developing nations by sending our used stuff over there? Well, I would say that that's probably the wrong way to think of it because we are not sending it. They are importing it. It doesn't go to overseas, to West Africa or to East Africa or to Southeast Asia, unless somebody in West Africa or East Africa, Southeast Asia, wherever it is, is paying for it. And they're paying for the shipping as well. You know, the way global trade works, I mean, you don't just, you know, go to the uh, the port and say, uh, here's a <laughs> container, 40 foot shipping container, send it off to the developing world. To, you know, Park it, it wherever you it can works. on the West Coast of Africa, just whoever yeah. Yeah, is somebody somebody actually has to consign that shipment. They have to want it. And so, you know, we get the all these verbs used with, you know, exporting used goods overseas that I th- find somewhat distasteful, like dumping, you know, this idea that we've dumped this stuff upon people in developing countries. But no, it's only reason it's going there is because somebody is buying it there. Um, They are purchasing it there. Now, they may not always be making good choices in the sorts of things that they're buying. But more often than not, I don't know about you, but I don't spend money at Amazon to have junk delivered to my door. And neither, neither will, you know, an importer of secondhand clothes who's spending thousands of dollars just on the shipping 
banking alone, they're not going to buy garbage. They they want good stuff that they could sell in their home markets. And so I would say uh, to Americans who worry about whether their stuff is being sent overseas, you know, don't worry about that. It, it isn't being sent anywhere. It's being imported by people who want it. So the e-waste that we read about going over to Africa, that's not waste. That's being reused as actual computers that they were five years ago here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is perhaps one of the most uh, misunderstood and I would say maligned uh, trades uh, in the world today is the global trade in used electronics. It's the reason that folks in Ghana, and I, I focused on Ghana for this part of the book, are importing all of those used electronics is because they are low cost and there is demand for low cost devices to get online, to watch television, to watch you know the latest EPL matches off imported used satellite dishes um, because the new stuff is still too expensive, though that's, that's changing quite quickly. Not a lot of $1,200 iPhones being sold new as a percentage in Africa. No, not at all. And, and again, uh, you know, $1,200 iPhones, uh, you know, I, I, I've spent a lot of time in Ghana over the last few years. You know, there are places where you can buy those things. Not many people go to them. Whereas if you spend time in Accra, Ghana, which is the capital of Ghana, you can find everywhere, every street has multiple shops selling used phones, used iPhones, which are in high demand there, used iPods, all of the stuff used. It's very easy to find. Uh, the stuff tends to be in pretty good condition because the people who own these shops oftentimes started out as people repairing these kinds of goods and got to know how to uh, to purchase them and, and what the import channels were uh, during their course of time uh, learning to repair them. So no, I mean, uh, that $1,200 iPhone, you can certainly buy it. It's probably actually more than $1,200 in Ghana if I think about the taxes there. But, you know, uh, spending the equivalent of three, four hundred dollars on a four or five year old iPhone, that's something that's that's accessible to a lot of people and a growing number of people there. And that's what creates this demand. So let's talk about recycling. I live in Atlanta, in the city of Atlanta, where we recently got new regulations for recycling. No plastic bags, nothing that hasn't been thoroughly rinsed. Lots of other little details that the city is implementing. What's going on here? Well, there was a big change in on January 1st, 2018, that's altered uh, the global global markets in recyclables and the local markets in recyclables and your home recycling bin. And, and that big change was that China announced that it was going to start reducing the amount and the types of recyclables that it was importing from around the world. For really uh, three and a half decades, China was the world's biggest importer of recyclables. And uh, this was also often characterized as dumping. But again, uh, nobody was dumping anything on China. They were purchasing it and they were voracious buyers of recyclables because they viewed them and used them as raw materials, low cost, uh, relatively green raw materials to fuel their economic rise. Everything from building cars to making the boxes that are used to put the Nikes in that are shipped back to the United States and sold at Foot Locker. China has reached a, a stage of economic development where it's now uh, generating a lot of its own uh, recyclables. And so the government said, you know what, we don't need these foreign recyclables coming into China anymore and depressing the prices for our domestic recyclables. So we're going to start reducing that. Well, in the United States, that created a big problem. So roughly two thirds prior to China doing this, 
roughly two thirds of the stuff that you put in your recycling bin in the United States stayed in the United States. But Americans waste so much stuff and throw away so much stuff that there was another third that didn't have anywhere to go in the United States. And that's the stuff that the Chinese were more than happy to purchase and bring to China and use to make stuff, oftentimes to sell back to Americans that would then get sent back to China and so on and so forth. So the question then became for American recycling programs, what do we do with this one third of stuff that's not being uh, purchased anymore? And a couple of things sort of came up in the course of, of this recycling soul searching, if you will. And the most important was that the quality of American recyclables wasn't as good as it could be, meaning, you know, there was stuff on it. If it was a Coke can, there was residual Coke on it and, you know, it smelled bad. Or, you know, with your paper, with your cardboard, there would be plastic wrappers and plastic bags mixed in with the cardboard. And when that stuff would get sent overseas to places like China, the Chinese would say, hey, wait a second, our importers purchased pure cardboard. They didn't purchase pure cardboard with 3% plastic bags and other plastic crap mixed in with it. And so as a result, you know, if you want to sell to us, we want that pure cardboard. And so American recycling programs which had not been sending uh, China and other markets, it wasn't just China that wanted pure stuff like that, um, had to adjust. And that's been a very difficult and expensive process of getting all of that trash, that contamination is what it's called in the trade, out of your recyclables. And that's why in Atlanta, you're seeing you know, your recycling programs telling you to do things that you didn't have to do before, like making sure that that recycling is clean. It's now got competition in China. And, and the Chinese government isn't interested in seeing its recyclers bring in stuff that isn't anything less than perfect. There was a big series of articles about recycling and trash in The Guardian a few months ago. And as I read it, I found myself getting pretty cynical about recycling in general. But as I read your book, it reminded me that if we weren't using these raw goods to replace natural resources, we would have to dig more holes, expend more energy to get those resources out of the ground and into manufacturing facilities around the world. Are you bullish on recycling and where it's headed? Yeah, I am. I mean, uh, the fact of the matter is, recycling is, as an industrial activity, a 200-year old, slightly older activity, but it, it dates back even further than that. I mean, people have been melting down unwanted bits of metal uh, for centuries. I mean, in the colonial period of the United States, you know, um, Americans uh, would collect clothes and cut it up and use it for making paper. I mean, that's the earliest paper in the United States wasn't made from trees. It was made from old clothing. And Americans would actually import old clothing from the UK in the 18th and 19th century to make paper. I mean, so the globalization of recycling isn't anything new. I grew up in the recycling industry and I have seen the end of recycling at least four times uh, where the markets <laughs> have collapsed. And, uh, and every time it comes back and it doesn't come back uh, because, you know, we're green and we love the environment and we want all our things to go to green pixie heaven or whatever it is after they're done. It survives and it keeps coming back because it's an economically efficient 
um, way of procuring raw materials. I mean, roughly half of the steel used in the United States every year comes from recycled resources. I mean, that's not a joke. You know, that's not a niche business. That is a crucial business. Um, and if you shut that down, Americans aren't going to just be able to open up, you know, taconite mines in northern Minnesota, replace all of that iron ore, you know, come next week. It's going to, you know, create real crises. And that's just one example of, you know, of, of how critical recycling is to fulfilling our raw material needs. You know, there's always, you know, always skepticism uh, to the recycling industry amongst people who are just becoming exposed to it. And they tend to get exposed to it when people are taking, when stop taking it for granted. You know, when we have a crisis, you know, a temporary crisis like the one we have with China right now, and that one's largely based, at least for a lot of people, on plastics. But I'm pretty sure if you and I talk five years from now, you know, questions about how to recycle plastics and what to do with them, a lot of those problems are going to be solved because there's massive amounts of investment going into technology uh, for both sorting and the actual recycling of these plastics uh, today. And, and I think that that's going to be solved in pretty short order. So I, I remain bullish. I look at the history of recycling, how it's bottomed out as a commodity business many, many times before, and it'll bottom out again. I mean, you know, when the global oil markets collapse, as they do every, what, 10 years, nobody says, oh, that's it. That's the end of oil. You know, <laughs> we, we know it's going to come back. You know, and the same goes for recycling because it's ultimately a commodity business and people need raw materials. On first hearing about your books, I assumed that these were manifestos against consumerism, but there's very little of that in here. It's really an in-depth analysis of the ecosystems of reuse and recycling around the world and how what we do, how the products we use end up someplace else in the world. Did you just want people to understand how it all works? Was that the main goal of writing these books? The first book was really just that. I, I thought the recycling industry, uh, when I started Junkyard Planet, was just incredibly misunderstood. This dumping narrative, the idea that we just dump our stuff on China, uh, was pervasive. And I thought that it would be helpful to show people why this stuff is moving to China, how it creates an environmental good, but also fulfills, you know, a very important need. As you said earlier, um, if China isn't getting raw materials, you know, from recycling, they're going to get them from somewhere else. And so, so I, I wanted people to understand that. Ultimately, I wanted them to understand that, you know, you won't have recycling without manufacturing. And there's no manufacturing if people don't want stuff. And so I didn't want to you know, slam people over the head with the message, but I did want them to think about the role of of their consumption in the creation of these recycling economies. Um, for secondhand, it started from a very different place. I mean, it. I'm the guy who writes about where your waste goes, but I had never thought about where stuff goes. You know, the the China, as you say, until it was really the responsibility of my sister and I to clean out my mother's home after she had passed away, and as we drove up to the Goodwill one, you know, afternoon with her China, quite literally with her China, it occurred to me that I don't know where this stuff is going once it goes through the donation door. And this is something that a lot of people are going to go through. And so I'd like to show them what happens uh, when their loved one's things are dropped off at that donation site. You know, it really started from there. And for me, it, it became a bit of a journey because I, I've never been much of a consumer. I'm not a shopper. I, you know, it's just, it's not, 
something I, I like to spend a lot of time doing. But, you know, in the course of, of reporting this book and going to the places I went and seeing all the things I saw, the piles of clothes, the unwanted books by the millions that are off the paper mills, as I saw this stuff, it, it made a, a really profound impression upon me. And, and so I, I wanted to take my readers on that journey and show them how I was reacting to seeing all of this excess. And at the end of the book, of course, I tell them how it changed my life my, and my wife's life. And so I, I hope, you know, some of that comes through, but ultimately both books were really just wanting to show people what happens and, and giving them the opportunity to reflect on their own about what that means. Um, I try not to tell my readers, you know, what to think too much. I, I want them to be able to make those decisions on their own. No, you certainly don't do that, but has it made you more of a conscientious consumer? It certainly has. It's hard not to, you know, if you go on the journey that I did. And, and, and so, yes, ultimately we buy much, much less stuff than we did before. And we weren't buying that much to begin with. We tend to buy better things, you know, things that can last beyond us, you know, last beyond our five-year-old son's, you know, short attention span, you know, better quality toys, things that, you know, if we can't sell it on eBay or, or via Facebook, you know, we can give it to somebody and know that it's still a good quality toy. It maybe is made of wood instead of, you know, breakable plastic, whatever it is. And so, you know, it can become part of a secondhand economy. My clothing, again, I'm not a big clothes buyer, but I, I really did after I spent time around the fashion side of this book and seeing how much cheap clothing is flowing through Goodwill. I just started making a point of buying better made stuff, you know, on those rare occasions when I buy it and so on and so forth. I mean, uh, uh, secondhand electronics, I'm more than happy to buy, you know, a, a two-year-old secondhand phone from a reputable dealer that's going to give me a, a warranty on it, you know, stuff like that, that I hadn't thought about before, but, but I do now. And so, yes, it changed, it changed our consuming habits profoundly. I learned a whole lot reading both these books and I'm glad you wrote them. Is there another book in the works? I told my wife we aren't even going to think about another book until July, uh, but I can't help it. I do have a, I do have something in mind, but I don't think I'm going to uh, start working on it in, until July, but there, there will be a third book for sure. Well, enjoy your well-earned rest. Is there a place on the internet where you would like people to find you if they'd like more information about you? They can always just Google my name and they'll find my Twitter uh, handle at Adam Minter. They can find me on Facebook. They'll find uh, my personal uh, homepage, which give you a little bit more information on my background. And, and you'll probably find links to my books, you know, anywhere you buy books online. The books are Junkyard Planet, Travels in the Billion Dollar Trash Trade, and the new one is Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. Adam Minter, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Adam. That was a fun conversation. I learned a lot from our chat and from reading your books. Hey, folks, if you like what we're doing here at Crazy Money, please do take a second to write us a review and give us a rating right there on that uh, on that app that you're listening to us on. And if you're on uh, Pandora or Spotify, follow the podcast. If you're on uh, Google Podcasts or, or Apple Podcasts, subscribe and rate. You scroll down to the bottom, click on the stars, write a nice review, say whatever you like, say whatever you like about the podcast, what we're doing here. Also share with some friends. If you have an episode that meant something to you, shoot it to some of your pals and see what they think about it as well. Lastly, almost lastly, semi-lastly, we've got a couple of shows coming up late in March. I'll be at the Syracuse Funny Bone in Syracuse, New York, March 27th through 29th. 
Come watch me turn 51 years old in sunny Syracuse in late March. Also, I'll be headlining a show at the DC Comedy Festival April 8th at Busboys and Poets. Go to dccomedyfestival.com. Lastly, lastly, thank you again to my producer and editor, Mike Carano. Mike, make me sound smart.